Hebrews chapter 12, would you pray with me one more time? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning weak, needy, many of us weary, some of us on the brink of exhaustion. We ask that you would renew our strength by opening the eyes of our hearts to behold your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. By the power of your Spirit, in his name we pray. Amen. How do you envision the Christian life? What image is it that comes to your mind when you think about living the Christian life? Is it maybe the image of a happy family, a stable home, kids who grow up well-educated and then are successful in society while you kind of go off into a peaceful retirement? Maybe some of you view the Christian life as relating to a rule book, a book of do's and don'ts. And you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts. Others maybe view Christianity as a religion of health, wealth, and happiness. Keep God happy, and He'll keep you happy. Or maybe you viewed it as some kind of a wish machine or a wishing well, where especially in times of distress, you come to God, and you make a wish, and He fulfills your every wish. Perhaps most common is we hardly think about the Christian life at all. We just carry on day by day, the same routine, rinse, repeat, mundane. Well, friends, if those are ways that you've taught, thought about the Christian life, I want to submit to you today that the Bible doesn't really present the Christian faith or life like that. In fact, this morning we're going to look at one particular image of the Christian life from the author of Hebrews here in Hebrews 12. And he wants us to picture a giant stadium, like the ancient Colosseum in Rome. And in this gigantic stadium, there's a track that runs through the stadium. And on the track are runners, people running. It's a strenuous, long-distance race, much longer than a marathon. And several of these runners are sweating, sweat dripping as they run. Some of them are weak and exhausted, panting for breath. Others, their knees are growing wobbly. But they keep running. And the stands in the stadium are filled with people. And these are not mere spectators. These are many of those who have actually run the same race before and have finished the race and made their way into the stands. And the runners just keep going. That's how the author of Hebrews wanted the congregation that he was speaking to to picture the Christian life. And that's how he wants us to envision the Christian life. It's not something passive. It's something we throw ourselves into actively. It's not something easy. It's hard. It's trying and strenuous. It's challenging. You feel exhausted often. You feel like giving up along the way. There are many temptations to give up, to stop running or to wander off the path. You see, the Christian life will not be lived by accident. You don't grow in godliness automatically. No, it's a fight to keep going. It's a fight to the finish line. Let's read Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So our text really has one main command this morning, and it's right there at the end of verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We must run the race set before us with endurance. It's a long-distance race. It's strenuous. And so we must endure. You think of the context of Hebrews again. These were Christians from a Jewish background. They were facing all kinds of affliction, persecution, suffering for their faith in Christ. Many of them had grown lax under this pressure. Some of them had grown sluggish, had begun to compromise. Some of them were tempted to uh, abandon the race altogether and go back to being Jews apart from Christ. They were faced with the temptation to give up and turn back. And from the beginning to the end, the author keeps on hammering home the same message. Jesus is better. He's the only way. There is no salvation apart from Him. And so don't stop believing. Keep moving forward. Don't give up. Keep running the race. I know it's hard. But dear Christian, put one step in front of the other and keep on by faith. Friends, that's the goal of God's word for us this morning. That we would resolve in our hearts to press on and to run with endurance the race set before us. And the author gives us three ways in this text that we keep running with endurance. So the main command is that we run this race with endurance, and we're going to look at three ways that we fulfill this command and that we will finish the race. First, we run the race with endurance by recognizing the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. By recognizing the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. Did you see what he says in verse 1? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then follows the command, let us. When he says therefore, he's indicating that the command he's about to give follows from what he said previously. In fact, it follows directly from everything that he has said in chapter 11. You see, chapter 11 doesn't end at verse 40. Uh, the chapters and the verse numbers were added later. What he is saying here in chapter 12, verse 1, is actually the culmination of everything that he's been showing us. It's the continuation and culmination of what he said in chapter 11. The exhortation he's about to give us, therefore, is because of all the examples of faith that we've seen all through chapter 11. All of the so-called hall of faith and the heroes of faith. And what he wants to say to us is because they were able to endure by their trust in the reality of God's promises. Because they have borne witness to the truth of God's faithfulness. You can look back at them and see that they endured suffering and affliction. Yet they made it to the end fixing their eyes on God's heavenly reward. Therefore, so can we. So can you. And don't forget the end of chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, verse 40, what did he say? He said that God had provided for us something better. See, all of the people we met in chapter 11 lived before the cross, before our Lord Jesus. They were looking forward to God fulfilling His promises. They had the shadows of the temple and of animal sacrifices, and they were looking forward to the day when God would provide a perfect and complete sacrifice that would draw them near to God, that would give them access to God's presence, a cleansed conscience, an eternal reward. We live on this side of the cross and of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises in Jesus who has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice that takes away sins, who has defeated dead, death and rose from the dead, guaranteeing our resurrection for all who trust him. 
We have something better. We have access to God's presence. We have cleansing of conscience by the blood of Christ. We have something better than they did. And so we can endure. Do, do you see also the logic that he uses here? He, he says in verse 1, Since we are surrounded, and then in the verse following, Let us. Let us. And the author has used that phrase already before in Hebrews. You might remember Hebrews chapter 4. Since we have such a great high priest, a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, therefore let us draw near. Since we have chapter 10, verses 19 and following, therefore let us. And here again he says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set before us. What we have motivates what we do. What does he mean by the fact that we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us? People have been very curious about this particular phrase. Sometimes people have taken this phrase to mean that those whom we have loved in the Lord, those who have gone before us, who have died and are now with the Lord, uh, are somehow looking down on us from heaven and they can see what we're doing, and all of that is visible to them. Brothers and sisters, I don't think that that's what Hebrews is talking about. In fact, I don't know that the Bible gives us that idea clearly anywhere, that what we do on earth is visible to those in heaven, and those who you know, we love in the Lord have gone before us and are watching your life right now. I don't know if that's in the Bible. I, I don't see it in any text. The other idea that people have is, that this great cloud of witnesses is watching us and cheering us on. So what are they witnessing? They're witnessing us running the race, and they're saying, go, go, you can do it. Moses and David and Abraham are cheering you on and saying, don't give up. I don't think that that's what this phrase means either. No, as one person put it, it's not so much them looking at us and cheering us on, it's about us looking at them and imitating their faith. Did you see the word he uses? They are a cloud of witnesses. That doesn't mean that they're witnessing you. It means that they're testifying to something. You might think back through chapter 11. What did they bear witness to? Well, they bore witness to the faithfulness of God and the reality of His promises. Abel, though he is dead, yet he still speaks, the author says. It says they were bearing witness that they were looking forward to a heavenly city whose builder is God. They bear witness to us through their lives, through their faith, through their witness. We are encouraged to keep running, to press on. Since we have all these examples, the author is telling us, since we have all these examples of trust in God's promises, since all of them, even in spite of their weakness, in spite of their failures, since all of them finish the race, because all of them testify that God is faithful to His promises, that He is true, so you also, we, can confidently run and finish this race. And it's not so much about the great strength of faith that they had and, and the author saying, look at how much faith they had and, and you can have that much faith and therefore finish. It's not about just the extent of their faith. It's about the object of their faith. You see, the God whom they trusted is the same God whom we have trusted. The one who strengthened them by His grace, by faith, is the same one who gives us strength to carry on and to finish this race. And you and I are in a far more privileged position than the original congregation of Hebrews. See, they had all of the examples of chapter 11 bearing witness to them. We have all of that, and we have 2,000 years of church history, of many lives lived by trust in God's promises, and many great things having been accomplished by faith in God and what He does. You could read a number of Christian biographies and see the fruits of faith in the lives of God's people throughout the ages 
This is why the author tells us in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So as we look at the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, we are told to imitate their faith. The one whom they trusted is the same one whom we have trusted. The Christian race is run in a community. A great cloud of witnesses in the past and a community of saints in the present. See, this week, uh, thinking about the entire race imagery of this passage, I looked up uh, who holds the world record for the marathon. And I learned about a man named Eliud Kipchoge. He's from Kenya. Yeah, Kenyans. And uh, he broke, a few years back, he broke the two-hour barrier uh, for the marathon, which no one thought was possible. He completed with a time of... One hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds, 40.2 seconds to be precise. But they have not counted that as the official world record. Uh, he still holds the world record, but the official time is something just over two hours. Uh, they didn't count it because uh, Mr. Kipchoge, apparently in this attempt, uh, was running with uh, certain parameters that didn't fit what is required for a world record attempt. His team of supporters were lined up along the way and were handing him bottles of fluid as he ran and as he grew weary. Not only that, but he had an entire group of runners running with him in a particular formation. They were all arranged in this formation uh, such that it would minimize wind resistance and enable him to run faster. kind of reminds me of our race. Our race is different from a normal marathon. We are never alone. See, in a normal race, runners are going solo, competing against one another. But our race, the Christian life, is a team sport. As one person says, in the journey of God's people, what matters most to each runner is that all the others make it safely home as well. In fact, later in chapter 12, verse 15, the author tells us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's our responsibility to make sure that no one fails to finish the race. This is why church is so vital. Commitment to the local church and participation in church life is vital because this is the community of runners that helps us finish. We have a great cloud of witnesses from the past we have a great formation of fellow runners running with us in the present, and that enables us to make it home. So, dear saint, I want to ask you, are you struggling in the race this morning? Are you here weak or weary? Are you afraid that because of your sin and failure, because of your flaws, your weaknesses, that you might not make it to the end? Are you exhausted? I want to encourage you, God's word encourages you to look at this great cloud in chapter 11 of men like Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and all the rest. Let their endurance, their faithfulness, their witness encourage you. Look at your brothers and sisters running around you, running with you. Maybe talk to someone after the service. Seek encouragement or maybe give encouragement Spend some time with another brother or sister praying together after the service. Together, we can make it. We can finish by God's grace. But there are some things that can get in the way. There are some things that we will need to deal with if we are going to make it to the end. And that leads to our second way that we run this race with endurance. Not only do we recognize the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, but second, we run this race with endurance by laying aside the weights and the sin that hinders us. We must lay aside every weight and sin that hinders us. Did you see uh, the second part there of verse 1? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the author is giving us two things there that we must lay aside if we are to run faithfully and make it. Sin and weights. We might call them hindrances. Let's come back to Eliud Kipchoge for a minute. I don't know much about track and field, but it was quite interesting this week. I googled Eliud, I googled the marathon record, found this guy, Eliud Kipchoge, and something that I noticed about him, which is fairly obvious about everyone who runs long distance, he's a really skinny guy. In fact, uh, some of our members here, uh, I can see one right now, have successfully completed marathons, and what I've noticed as they train and get re ready for the marathon, they get slimmer. They slim down. And Elliot Kipchoge is also wearing minimal clothing as he runs, right? He's in this singlet and these little shorts. He's not running in a suit and tie. I'm pretty confident he would look nice in a suit and tie, but he's not wearing those things. I don't see marathon runners running long-distance endurance races with weighted vests or with ankle, weight, ankle weights. None of them are running in army boots. None of the female participants are running in high heels. There's no rule against wearing those things. They were free to wear those things. But it hinders them. You see, in fact, the, if you go back to the original context, uh, at the time Hebrews was written, uh, in the original Olympic Games, this might shock or surprise you, maybe not, uh, in the original uh, competitive athletic games in the ancient world, all of the runners would be running in the nude, naked. That's how we must run. I don't mean that we are to run naked. <laughs> we must shed all extra weight. And I want you to notice that the weight here that the author is speaking of, every weight, is not sin. He mentions sin explicitly. The weight that the author, author exhorts us to lay aside is anything, even neutral things, even good things that might hinder our running, that might slow us down, that might weigh us down spiritually. And all of us are familiar with these things, things that we accumulate in our lives, that begin to weigh upon us, make us sluggish. Our affections get weighed down. We get distracted from running. You know, the problem of most believers is not that they live an evil life, but that they live an empty life. Our problem is not so much that we live a vile life, but that we live a vain life, distracted by vain things that charm our hearts. Think about the things that we do that don't help us on our way but weigh us down and hinder us. And I want to ask you this morning, dear brothers and sisters, what is it that's weighing you down that needs to be stripped off and laid aside? What are those things that you think are neutral, that might even be good things, that are slowing you down? Could be career ambitions for some of you. For some of you, it's particular friendships that have become a spiritual weight and extra baggage in your life. For many of us, I'm sure, it's just addiction, a kind of slavish, slavish addiction to mindless entertainment, binge-watching, Netflix. Maybe it's certain habits that you have given yourself to that are occupying too much of your heart. For many, I'm sure, one of the weights in your life is social media and your smartphone. You know, I have known people in this congregation who deleted their social media accounts and lo and behold, all of a sudden their hearts began to grow in contentment and joy. Brothers and sisters, we ought to do a spiritual audit of our lives this morning. And with everything that's there, we've got to ask ourselves, is it a help or is it a hindrance? Is it weighing me down in my race 
And if it is, then we need to come to the Lord and say, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Not only does the author tell us to lay aside weights, he also tells us to lay aside sin that clings so closely. Did you see that? When he's speaking of sin that clings closely, that phrase can be nicely translated, sin that easily entangles, as the New American Standard Bible puts it. The older translations would use this uh, very powerful word, besetting sin. When he speaks of besetting sins, he's speaking of those so-called little sins, the sins that creep into our lives unnoticed, that we kind of ignore or fail to deal with. We think they're no big deal. It's not a big deal. This is not going to hinder me. You just keep going, ignoring it like as if it's nothing. But you don't realize that it's taken a foothold in your life. You know, several years ago, I was making great progress in my uh, weightlifting journey. Uh, every week, I was adding more and more kilograms on the barbell, and I was beginning to feel strong. And then I woke up one morning, and something was kind of irritating me on my big toe, on my left foot. And I was wondering, what is this thing, you know? Maybe I stubbed it while walking or something like that, and it'll just go away. Uh, so I just let it be. I just carried on as usual. I carried on weightlifting. A few days later, I looked at my toe, and my toe had started to grow pink. And it started to hurt. And any weightlifting that I tried to do, even my putting on my shoes began to hurt. I couldn't walk steadily. A few days after that, my foot started to turn pink. I was like, I better go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor, and she said, what you have is an ingrown toenail. And at that point, I didn't even know what an ingrown toenail even was. So she said, it's a toenail that has grown kind of incorrectly and now is piercing your skin. And I said, okay, so what do we do about it? Cut off the toenail? And she said, no, you have to get on antibiotics right now. Because you see, it's gotten infected and your foot is affected. Something as small as an ingrown toenail left unaddressed can lead to infection. The infection can go all the way down deep into your bone and it can ultimately lead to the amputation of your foot. I took antibiotics and I got better, praise God. But that's how our besetting sins can be. They're like ingrown toenails that you at first don't notice. And then they begin to hinder us, entangle us, infect us, and finally ruin us. It's often these sins that ruin us rather than the big obvious sins. See, think about it. You're running a race. You're on the track. You see a big boulder in front of you. You don't just run straight into the boulder. You run around it. It's not the big boulder on the track that gets you. It's the pebbles in your shoes. Sometimes marriages end not because of adultery or abuse, but simply because of habitual laziness and dishonesty. Sometimes our Christian lives get ruined because of a long series of small compromises rather than one big failure. I mean, you think about the people hearing this, the congregation to whom the author was speaking. They had faced persecution, affliction. Some of them had grown lax. He tells us earlier that they had grown sluggish. Some of them had begun to forsake going to church, gathering with the church, assembling with God's people. It's no big deal. It's okay. And they had kept allowing sin to creep into their lives until it dulled their hearts and affections. Friends, if sin is left unchecked, it will entangle you, it will trip you up, and it will end your race. Remember, what we're running is not like a quick sprint. <laughs> this is not a short contest, seven minutes and done. No, this is a long-distance endurance race. 
We must run with endurance. We have to keep going. And it is so long and it is hard. And if you have a stone in your shoe and you leave it there, it will begin to make a wound in your foot. And that wound will turn into a gash. And that gash will turn into infection. And that infection will bring you down. So maybe this morning we need to slow down and deal with what is entangling us. Maybe we need to stop and think about what are those besetting sins in our lives that we need to bring to the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning and God's word is speaking to you and the Lord is calling upon you to slow down, take your shoe off and empty those little stones. What is it that is entangling you? What is it that is tripping you up? Think about this. For some of you, it might be unforgiveness, an unreconciled relationship that has begun to grow into bitterness in your heart. For others, it is the constant sense of discontentment and discontentment that has festered and festered and now has given way to grumbling and frustration maybe even envy of others. For many, I'm sure, it's the struggle with lust and sexual sin, habitual compromises on the internet. For some of you, it's, it's kind of a pridefulness and arrogance. You think you've got it made. You think there's no one like you and you're unwilling to listen to others. Some are lazy, spiritually lazy, Others have given in to a pattern of habitual dishonesty and compromises in integrity, failure to be truthful. Unthankfulness can be a besetting sin. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what it is that is leading you towards coldness, towards God and His people. And, and you know, we are very good at excusing ourselves for these so-called small sins, for these so-called respectable sins. We can often fool ourselves saying things like, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. I'll just deal with it later. Or it doesn't hurt anyone. I only do this once in a while. Or you, you might say, well, that's just the way it is. That's just me. That's who I am. You know, I, everyone has weaknesses. Everyone makes mistakes. Or that's just my culture. That's how we do things in my culture. Brothers and sisters, don't kid yourself. Don't let sin deceive you. Don't ignore this one day longer. Whatever besetting sin it is, lay it aside. We have a race to run. And there is a great prize to be won. Life. Eternal life with Christ. Let's fix our eyes on that prize. Lay aside these things and run without hindrance. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard, brothers and sisters. I know that the race is hard. I know that for many of us, we often feel weary. We feel discouraged. We often get faint-hearted. There are distractions that seek to lure us away. There are hindrances. Many of us even facing opposition as we run. But that's why the author reminds us of the third and most important way that we run this race with endurance. We run with endurance by recognizing the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. We run with endurance by laying aside the weight and sin that entangles us. But third and most importantly, we run with endurance by looking to Jesus who endured for us. Did you see where he spends most of his time in verses 2 and 3? Looking to Jesus, let us run the race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are you feeling weary or faint-hearted this morning? The author speaks to you, the word of God speaks to you and says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He repeats it twice just in case you missed it. Looking to Jesus, consider Jesus, focus your attention on Him. As one of the older translations says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And did you see, He gives us four truths about our Lord Jesus Christ in just those two packed verses. He tells us first, He is the pioneer, the founder and perfecter of faith. 
He tells us he endured the cross for the joy that, uh, that was set before him. He tells us he is seated at the right hand of God, and he tells us that he endured hostility from sinners. Fix our eyes on this Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. You see that in verse 2? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And when he uses the word founder there, uh, the word literally means pioneer. It's speaking of someone who has blazed a trail, who has gone before us. He's saying Jesus himself has walked the walk of faith. He ran this race by faith. He is the champion of faith. He brought it to its conclusion. You see, Jesus our Lord, God the Son, took on flesh so that he was fully God, fully man. And he lived as our perfect representative in the confines of a human body and mind. He lived by faith, trusting in God's promises. He is the premier example of faith. You see, faith is the reality of God's promises yet to be fulfilled that you cannot yet see. And Jesus trusted in God's promises as he suffered in this world. As he prayed in the garden and sweated great drops of blood, he cried out to God saying, not my will but yours be done and trusting that God would deliver him from death. He went to the cross knowing what he would endure, but he believed that God would hear his prayer, that God would deliver him from death, that God would bring him into glory with a blood-bought family of brothers and sisters. You see, every example in Hebrews 11 points to Jesus. He is the perfecter, the one who completes faith and brings it to its conclusion. All of them. Abel points to Jesus. In his offering of a sacrifice, he points forward to Jesus who would offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. In his death as a righteous man, Abel points forward to Jesus who would die as a righteous man being put to death and his blood does not cry out condemnation but cries out forgiveness. Enoch points to Jesus as one who walked with God and pleased God and was taken up into heaven. He points forward to Jesus who is the one who walked with God, lived the perfect life, died and yet defeated death, rose again and ascended into heaven in glory. Noah points forward to Jesus. Noah built an ark for the salvation of his household. Jesus is the ark that provides salvation to all who trust in him. Abraham was looking forward to the heavenly city whose architect and builder is God. Jesus has come as the perfect offspring of Abraham and has established that heavenly city by his blood. Moses points forward to Jesus. Moses left the treasures of Egypt and suffered with God's people. He kept the Passover in faith that God would deliver his people and he led the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Jesus has come having left the treasures of heaven, endured suffering and affliction with us, for us, died as the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world and has led us in a great exodus out from Satan, sin and death. As one person says, if the Old Testament heroes are small lights testifying to faith in God, Jesus on the cross is the blazing sun bringing faith to its most dazzling expression. How did Jesus trailblaze this path of faith and bring it to perfection? The answer is he endured the cross. Did you see what the author says there? For the joy that was set before him he endured the cross, despising the shame. How did Jesus endure the cross? Well, he fixed his eyes on the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? I like how one person puts this. He says, his joy was his own future exaltation at the Father's right hand with the completion of our salvation, crowning his head. Jesus knew that the cross leads to the crown, and that before the crown, there must be the cross. You go back to chapter 2, the author told us that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that by the grace of God, he has tasted death for everyone and in so doing has brought many sons to glory. 
Jesus looked forward beyond the cross to the fact that he would be glorified with his Father with great joy and that he would share that glory and joy with us. A worldwide family of faith bought with his blood, brothers and sisters of his from every tribe and tongue and nation whom he would bring into his great glory and our great joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. What does that mean that Jesus despised the shame? Again, you've got to think about the context, right? These people were facing shame for following Jesus. They were facing exclusion from society for following Jesus. And the author is telling them and telling us, well, think about the shame that Jesus faced. He despised it which means that he looked at the shame, he carefully considered the shame that he would endure, and he disregarded it, saying, I'll take it because of the joy set before me. The, the author here focuses with us on what, this particular agony of the cross, the shame of the cross. Think of the shame, brothers and sisters. The cross was an object of great, unimaginable shame in the ancient world. People didn't speak about crucifixion in polite company because this was a shameful thing reserved only for the worst of criminals. Jesus endured the cross, the most gruesome, most shameful punishment imaginable, saying, I'll take the shame. Think of the shame of Jesus the blessed Son of God, God the Son from all eternity, now hanging on the cross and treated as one cursed of God. Think of the shame of the one who had the praises of heaven from all eternity, where God the Father himself has testified, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased facing the shame of mocking and people saying, if he's the son of God, let him come down from the cross and people spitting on his face and the hostility that he faces, the abandonment that he endured. Think of the shame of the sinless, perfect son of God, holy, innocent, undefiled, far apart from sin, now hanging on the cross, being treated as a worthless criminal with the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. Think of the shame of the one who had all glory, all majesty, all authority, hanging on the cross, naked, helpless, beaten, bruised, bleeding, battered, torn and he disregarded it all. He took it all upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself for the joy set before him for you and me. As John Piper says, Jesus looked shame in the face and said, listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that, I despise you. Oh shame, you think you have power, compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, 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 for the joy, for his joy, for our joy in him, the joy that he shares with us. Our Savior went, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In our place, condemned he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Are you weary in the race this morning? Are you feeling faint-hearted? Do you feel like giving up, dear saint? Fix your eyes upon this glorious Christ, this Savior, the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. I mean, it's amazing the parallels that we see actually in verses 1 and 2. If you look at these parallels, the author tells us that we must run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he says in verse 2 that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He tells us again in verse 3, he endured from sinners hostility against himself. The message is very clear. We endure 
because he endured. We run the race that is set before us because he achieved the joy that was set before him. At every point, he was fully faithful. He fixed his eyes on the glory and the joy that he would share with us. And now we are called to fix our eyes on him and keep running. What was the out outcome of his faith-filled endurance? Well, he is seated at the right hand of God. Did you see that? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was victorious. His faith and his faithfulness was rewarded. God raised him from the dead in glory. He ascended into heaven, sat at God's right hand from where he rules and reigns, having all authority in heaven and on earth, and he intercedes for us as our great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. If you haven't caught this, the author has been repeating this right from the beginning of Hebrews, again and again, chapter 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 8, verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated in the heavenly places. Chapter 10, verse 12, after making a single offering for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, the author wants to scream to us, his work is finished, it is done. He sat down, our sins are paid for. If you're struggling with sin, if you feel that your sin will bring you to an end, remember this first, Jesus sat down. He rules and he reigns and he is making intercession for us at the Father's right hand. He is praying for you, dear brother or sister, even now. You see, it's not like this race has been sponsored by Nike. It's not just do it, right? That's not how we live the Christian life, just do it. No, it's not that we perform and somehow earn God's favor. No. It's because we have been forgiven. Because we have already been accepted by God's grace. Because Jesus has already paid the price through the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Because he is our great high priest praying for you at God's right hand and ready to welcome you into his arms one day, into his heavenly city. So, dear Christian, run! Run, Christian, run! Run following the path that God has paved for you, that the Son of God has paved for you by shedding his blood. We struggle confidently because he is seated victoriously. We can face whatever comes our way because we know that He rules and reigns. That even when we stumble, even when we fall, He has paid for all our sins. He stands as our perfect righteousness before the throne of God. And He is praying for you and me even now. The author has told us to fix our eyes on Jesus that he is the pioneer and perfecter of faith, that he endured the cross, that he is seated at the right hand of God. And now he tells us, he endured hostility from sinners. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As you face hostility, as we face trials, as we face kind of great affliction that even the original audience of Hebrews faced, we do one thing. We focus our attention on Jesus. See, that's the key to not grow weary or faint-hearted in this race. If we're growing weary, fix our eyes on Him again. The Christian life is long. The road is hard. I've told you many times, these people were faced with this question, is it worth it to be a Christian and the author answers in one word, Christ. You have Christ. C.S. Lewis once said, reality looked at long enough is unbearable. So the question is, dear saint, what are you looking at? Where are your eyes fixed this morning? Are you looking at this world? 
with the many things with which it distracts us? Are you looking at yourself, maybe spending too much time looking at yourself, your own flaws, your own failures, your own struggles? Look again at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him. He will give you the strength to keep going. Some of you are maybe facing shame for your faith in Christ, exclusion or suffering, even the loss of dear relationships. To you, Hebrews says, when you know what He faced for you, you realize that you can face anything for Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus, on the joy set before you, and keep going. Maybe you're here this morning and you've grown weary in the race. Maybe you've begun to lose steam. You feel exhausted. You feel like sitting down or giving up. To you, Hebrews says, keep running. Hear the cloud of witnesses bearing witness around you to the faithfulness of God. Fix your eyes on your Savior and what He endured for you and just put one foot in front of the other and run, dear Christian, run. Maybe you're here and you wandered off the track, off the racetrack, and you ran off into some fields. You fixed your eyes somewhere else. Fix your eyes today on our Lord Jesus Christ, and He will bring you right back on track. Maybe you're here and you haven't even started the race. You have never begun this race because you haven't known our Lord Jesus Christ. And to you we want to say that our holy God against whom we have sinned has shown His grace and mercy towards sinners in such a way that He sent His only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for sin, who has taken our sin and shame and the judgment that we deserve. And by repenting and trusting in Him today, you have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and you can join us in this great race towards our heavenly prize eternal life. The Christian life is not easy. There are dangers and toils along the way, but we can make it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Him. Behold Him. Behold Him in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, praying, crying out, not my will, but yours be done. Behold him silent as they accused him and mocked him and spit on him. Behold him going to the cross, hanging on the cross, surrounded by hostile sinners, enveloped in darkness, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Behold him enduring to the end and then victorious rising from the dead, behold him seated, see him seated at God's right hand, praying for you and me, ready to welcome us into his arms, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. This morning, brothers and sisters, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for so great a Savior. And we pray that by Your grace, we would fix our eyes on our glorious Christ and endure. Give us the strength to make it to the end and share in Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.